The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. And I'm Nara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing how the SNP's secret state is threatening devolution, learning about Germany's hollow army, and asking if the customer is in fact always wrong. First up, the COVID inquiry has now moved to Scotland. And in his cover story for the magazine, our editor, Fraser Nelson, looks at some of the many revelations uncovered by Jamie Dawson, KC. Fraser describes how civil servants were enlisted in an SNP secret state, as he puts it. Joining us now is the Spectator's Coffeehouse Scots team, Times columnist Ian McWhorter, the Spectator's data editor, Michael Simmons, and the Spectator's social media editor, Lucy Dunn, who coordinates our Scotland coverage. So Ian Fraser's piece looks at the the inquiry which has now moved up to Edinburgh and one of the big revelations has been the deletion of WhatsApp messages. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how important a story it has, has been? Well, it was really um, established even before these hearings began that there had been a policy of mass deletion by the Scottish government. Jamie Dawson, KC from the uh, Baroness Hallett's uh, UK COVID inquiry had already made clear that they had not got uh, messages, WhatsApp messages or other uh, informal messages, electronic messages from the First Minister. Um, And it was uh, Nicola Sturgeon had equivocated about that when she was questioned about it and said, well, she wasn't going to say yes or no. And it turned out, of course, as the inquiry hearings began, that she had um, deleted. She uh, agreed that she had um, deleted her WhatsApp messages um, on a regular basis. And then it emerged, of course, that others have been doing the same thing. The National Clinical Director, Jason Leach, he infamously said that it was his pre-bed ritual to delete WhatsApp messages. And uh, other senior figures in the government, uh, like John Swinney, the former Deputy First Minister, also had uh, deleted all their WhatsApp messages. So there was th- we knew about this beforehand. There had been, there's no doubt about it, mass deletion of WhatsApp uh, messages as an, actual, as an act of policy, apparently. Though, puzzlingly, Liz Lloyd this morning, who is the Chief of Staff for Nicola Sturgeon for many years, uh, and certainly through the pandemic, said that uh, she'd actually never heard this instruction that people were supposed to delete their messages at the end of every day. But the civil servants who have been questioned by Jamie Dawson in the inquiry have also said that uh, uh, they had been advising people to delete their messages. So we know what this uh, what this means, that we will get a very selective and possibly bowdlerized account of the transactions amongst key figures in the Scottish government and the civil service during the pandemic. And today we got a kind of indication of some of the things we might have missed when uh, Nicola Sturgeon was revealed in, a, in, a, in an email to Liz Lloyd, in a, sorry, a WhatsApp to Liz Lloyd, to have said, um, not sure if I can use this word, but that described um, Boris Johnson as an effing clown. 
Now, actually, I don't think many in the SNP are particularly concerned about this because it's all over Twitter and lots of nationalists are saying, oh, great, this is exactly what we all thought about Boris Johnson. Nevertheless, that perhaps gives a hint of the kind of things we might have missed, the kinds of things which um, featured so prominently, the language that featured so prominently, casual uh, and dismissive approach to important matters that we heard so prominently in the UK COVID inquiries, um, these will, will never really learn the truth of them here. Hmm. Michael, there's a point that, that Ian mentioned there when it comes to uh, the deleting WhatsApps, and that's the fact that it's not just SNP politicians that were deleting them, we know it was civil servants as well. And um, there's a point that Fraser makes in his cover piece this week about how this whole scandal really has revealed is the extent to which civil servants in Scotland are now part of an SNP clique, if you like, as in they are, they it's revealing that they are um, on the, the nationalist cause and the sort of line between the supposedly impartial civil service and the, 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 nation, the Scottish Nationalist Party. That line is becoming blurred. Um, do you agree with his analysis? And has the, have you been quite shocked at some of the revelations we've we've had out of these whatsapp yeah i i think as you as you say that's the the, the really kind of newsworthy part of these whatsapps is not just the um not just what nicola sturgeon or hamza yusuf or whoever in the kind of political level was saying but what um you know senior civil servants were saying you know ken thompson who was there at the start of um of uh, devolution you know giving out these uh, instructions that he now says were flippant about deleting whatsapps and I can maybe shine a bit of a bit of light on this because it very very briefly I was a civil servant in the Scottish government, and I think what what's probably happened is that the way the Scottish government's record system works is you sort of save everything and then you have to mark stuff as as if it's information relevant to a decision, um, and if it is that gets kept permanently and basically everything else gets deleted. And I suspect for that has been kind of used um, as a, you know justification for this WhatsApp policy, but it's, it's obvious when you see what has been kept by you know the, the the messages that Ian mentions why you would look to to be deleting them. Uh, but it, as you say, it is just surprising that this is happening at senior levels, and I think this will be kind of eye opening because there's been people in, for years um, in Scotland saying that. Oh, um, Nicholas Sturgeon and the SNP generally run a secretive style of, of government, and the, the, we we've made these criticisms about unminuted meetings, etc. But I think that that kind of criticism has always been believed by sort of the unionist side and generally battered away. But I think this is the first time we've seen, you know, people look, look at today. Um, Amar Anwar, who um, is such a close friend of Hamza Yusuf that he was there when he won the leadership election, is now you know openly criticising him and, and his government. So it's it's interesting, and I think it's an eye-opening kind of event. Lucy, one of, one of the points that Fraser also makes is that the clique, as he puts it, that now runs Scotland seemed unable to distinguish between the objectives of a political party and, and the proper conduct of government. What what do you make of that? Does that seem a fair assessment? Yeah, I think there's certainly been some crossover and, and, and I think that the way that the Scottish government is run just now is that, uh, especially under Nicola Sturgeon, it did become this sort of real sort of inner circle that was operating at the top and quite insular, really. Um, and I think we can see that in the messages that are coming across just now. There's a real sort of like complacency. Um, people are saying things over WhatsApp that they would obviously never say on the records um, and never expected their sort of inner conversations to be published in the way they have been. Um, I think, you know, we've seen, for example, um, hints about sort of politically motivated um, COVID strategies. So the Scottish government tried to pursue a slightly different COVID approach and 
the messages that have come out today have shown that that is not just because they were trying to be more cautious, it's because they were quite keen to demarcate themselves from the UK government. We had Liz Lloyd, for example, um, saying that she wanted to set a timeline for furlough. It's a purely political means of trying to really put the UK government in a difficult place. And I think that Sturgeon, for example, has also said that she was reluctant um, to agree with the UK government on certain decisions. So it does seem to have gone back to this us and them type politics that just doesn't seem to have even in the sort of face of a global pandemic, was not really ever put to the side. and something that the Scottish government are now really having to face up to. And Ian, um, there's a point that Fraser makes in this piece where he argues that the SNP's response to the pandemic is just one of the many issues that has arisen as a consequence of devolution, uh, which of course marks its 25th anniversary this year. Do you agree with his analysis? Um, I think uh, it has been um, a revelation to those of us who supported uh, devolution, you know, over 20 years ago, the extent to which uh, it became a kind of de facto one-party state. Now, it's not a one-party state in an undemocratic sense. The Scottish government, the SNP governments have all been elected in, in fully democratic processes, but the sheer length of time Uh, and the sheer dominance of the one political party, the Scottish National Party, which has been in power since 2007, and as has in that time, as probably most would happen under most governments, in that time has managed to effectively politicise the civil service, something I don't think anybody uh, believed could happen um, before devolution uh, took place. And when we all subscribe to the sort of naive belief that, you know, the civil service was was at least to a certain extent uh, impartial and... uh, and um, unpolitical. Anyway, that's all been shattered, I think, by this experience. And it's also undermined what many people saw as supposedly the benefit of electoral reform of the additional member system, this this form of proportional representation under which the Scottish government is uh, elected and under which the SNP has been re-elected successively. Because most people said, well, that's your guarantee against this kind of you know, dominance by one political party, that, you know, there will always be the way people describe it, there will always be sort of shifting coalitions, there will always be checks and balances and balances of power. And that has been demonstrated to be totally false. In fact, proportional representation can produce precisely the opposite. You can see that the way the SNP has subtly moved to embrace into its, into its government the Green, Scottish Green Party, uh, which means that, that even uh, more likely now that the, the SNP will effectively remain in control. And I think this is just what happens. You know, if you have governments which, are, which, which have very little opposition as well, and this is another criticism perhaps of devolution, that the opposition parties have not really been able to, pro- to provide the effective opposition that you come to expect. Perhaps it's because... The SNP takes uh, takes Scotland seriously because it wants to uh, make Scotland independent, whereas the other parties tend to look to Westminster. Um, The Labour Party, uh, you know, was very badly damaged by appearing to be the kind of branch office of of Labour under Tony Blair. And subsequently, the Tories have um, similarly had uh, great problems articulating their relationship with Westminster. So you had both a failure of opposition, a failure of... Uh, the electoral system. And, um, well, it has to be said, there are, um, not, if not authoritarian, there are certainly um, tendencies in the SNP to believe that they are morally superior because they're 
they're they're they're pushing for independence, and because they think people who are not in, don't support independence are in some way very bad and not not the right kind of people, and its single mindedness and purpose has, um, I'm afraid, led to the situation we are in at the moment, where uh, you know you've you've been through a period when, as, as I say, it's been very it's been kind of a period of monolithic government and lots of organisations who aren't even part of the civil service, so-called civil society organisations have been enlisted into the kind of SNP camp through um, the funding of charities, uh, trans charities, for example, who get large amounts of public funding and they support the, they support the, uh, the SNP government. So it's gradually extended its reach outside parliament itself. But, you know, we, it is a democracy. So, I mean, this can unwind and it's quite possible now that we're seeing the disintegration, the final disintegration of this SNP monolith. And I think the next election will be a big wake-up call for them. Michael, just finally, the COVID inquiry is going to be a long and protracted process and it's going to keep rumbling on. I know you've been following it fairly closely. Do you think we're likely to see more drama in Scotland's own part of the inquiry? And and, and also, do you think much is going to be learnt from the inquiry? There's certainly more to come um, from Scotland. I mean, literally, as we're recording today, um, we've had another message out um, where Jason Leach is basically telling Hamza Youssef that the First Minister would you know, rather not have any advisors. And this, this plays into this image of her control freakery. And also Nicola Sturgeon herself is due to testify next Wednesday. So I'm sure um, that will kind of cause some drama. But um, to be slightly hypocritical of perhaps my own coverage, um, there's danger of us getting too bogged down in these WhatsApps. Unlike um, with the inquiry in England, where there's been a lot about who slagged who off on WhatsApp, there's a danger that it distracts from, you know, the real focus, which is should be what, you know, health policies that were taken, the lockdowns, etc. Did they work? Did they do more harm than good? And actually, if you if you look away from the WhatsApps and look at some of the written evidence we've seen to the inquiry, um, there's been some interesting stuff. Since, for instance, um, Professor Woolhouse, who was advisor to the Scottish government, basically said that there was never any scientific attempt to look for any alternatives to lockdown, for example. So I think um, the inquiry, you know, has the potential to f- find the actual important results if you know if a pandemic is to happen again but i think you know for explainable reasons the focus is is going to be on these whatsapps so you know who knows if if it's all worth it in the end ian lucy and michael thank you very much indeed for joining us thank you next up as this country's army chief has raised the prospect of conscription in the event of war with russia spare a thought for germany whose plans to rebuild its army are already imploding Lisa Hazeldine writes about the dire state of Germany's army for the magazine this week, and she joins me now, along with Elizabeth Braw, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Lisa, you begin by writing about the decision from Chancellor Olaf Scholz to send a combat brigade to be permanently deployed in Lithuania. What's the significance of this? So this is the first time that German troops will be posted abroad outside of Germany's borders permanently. So since the reunification of Germany, German troops have been able to go on rotation abroad on foreign placements, as it were. But this will be the first time that there'll be troops permanently stationed there. So this is quite a big shock to the army when it was announced in the summer, precisely for that reason. And the foreign ministry have added as a sweetener that troops can bring their families, their kids. But from a geopolitical perspective and from a sort of military strategy perspective, this is quite a big deal for the German army. But you you say in your piece that this announcement was made by Schultz without 
consulting the military and that if he had consulted the military, they might have warned him and his new defence minister, Boris Pistorius, against wishful thinking. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, so the German army has been plagued by troubles with recruitment, equipment, sort of general funding really for years. So this predates Pistorius, who only came in as defence minister last year, predates Schultz, who only came in as chancellor about two years ago now. And basically, the German army has had concerns for years about just how poorly equipped it is, how poorly staffed it is. And their concern with this deployment to Lithuania is that essentially these 5,000 troops will take away really important resources and manpower from the German army that currently exists. So it'll be stretching them very thin and that's something that they're really worried about, particularly when it's not really clear how they're going to stop the gaps, basically, and help the German army sort of cover domestic defence as well as this new deployment. Elizabeth, what are your thoughts on Germany's uh, bold plans for transforming their army? Do you agree with Lisa that the reality is perhaps proving somewhat harder than the rhetoric of politicians uh, seems to suggest. It, it, it is uh, turning out to be quite difficult, but you should remember they are starting from a, a Pistorius is starting from a really difficult starting position, uh, which is that he has been preceded by ministers, a number of ministers who weren't really that interested. There have been some who were interested, especially AKK, as as her as she was called, Angut Kam Kamenbauer. She was interested, but didn't manage to, to get everything she wanted done while she was defence uh, minister, then uh, there was uh, Christine Lambrecht, who was so uninterested in the job that Der Spiegel, which is a, a, a fine German news magazine, ran a story about her uh, with the headline, Minister Can't Be Bothered, <laughs> um, or the Can't Be Bothered Minister. I mean, that's how uh, how uh, totally uninterested she was. Ursula von der Leyen also wasn't very interested. So credit for, to Pistorius for, for trying and and he is somebody who has a genuine interest uh, in the armed forces. He uh, he is not a conscientious objector. Most men of his age uh, on the center left in Germany did not serve, uh, did not do military service. They opted, opted for the civilian version that existed back then in, in West Germany. He opted for for military service, and and so that makes him quite unusual uh, within his party and on on the center left. In general, and he's really uh, tackling the difficult issues, including reforming the procurement agency, which is something that's been needed uh, that needed to be done long ago, and he is tackling it now. So you can say, well, it's a little bit wishful thinking to say that we'll be sending a brigade to Lithuania. But on the other hand, you can say, well, good for him for having ambitions for the German armed forces and not constantly saying, as many of his colleagues stand down over the years, well, you know, we're Germany, we can't do it. And by the way, we have our history. And so we won't do anything really for the alliance. Uh, and he's actually trying to be a good ally within NATO and credit to him for that, even though it will be difficult to get get all the pieces together that they need to, to for, for this brigade, uh, promised brigade to work. Mm. And, uh, and Elizabeth, as well as these deficiencies, which which Lisa points out um, uh, very well in in the piece, the shortcomings in terms of numbers of of troops, the shortcomings in terms of kit, all of that is true. But but is it fair, do you think, to to categorise this as a distinctly a German problem? Uh, we ran a piece by Andrew Roberts as our cover piece for the Spectator last year, which which pointed out how uh, many of Europe's once great armies are in a 
very dire state. And I wonder what your thoughts are, including, of course, um, the UK's army. And I wondered what your thoughts are on, on that and, and which European countries, which NATO members perhaps are pulling more of their weight than others when it comes to, uh, when it comes to army and, and kit. Yeah, I think uh, essentially every, every European, Western European country has been on the same trajectory uh, since the 90s, which is uh, reduced military spending, uh, uh, resulting in cuts to the, to the armed forces, all branches, by, by the way, not just army, but for the Air Force and, and Navy as well. And we have seen that in the UK, you know, the, the Royal Navy, which uh, is uh, the UK's international calling card, has also been cut, and, and not just for a few years, for, for uh, decades now. So it, it was, I think, a reasonable response in the 90s to say, you know, well, why should we keep spending on, on the military when, when the world seems to be, become, to be uh, more peaceful and become, about to become even more peaceful? Uh, the, the problem is when that situation changes and everybody tries to, to invest more at the same time. How is that going to work? You can't do it quickly uh, because defense manufacturers have um, order books. And when those order books are filled, you have to wait. They, they can't quickly uh, hire lots more people. There are, there are not that many people that they can hire. So you just have to wait. And where are the soldiers and airmen and sailors going to come from. So this is the challenge at the moment uh, in Germany and elsewhere, and we've seen it in the UK too. Where are these people waiting to go into the defense manufacturing sectors to work as skilled workers? Where are the people who are waiting to join the armed forces? And I think the, the, the sort of the fundamental dilemma is that the smaller the armed forces become, the less interaction people have with them, and the less they realize that, oh, this is actually something I might like to do. And if you think of, of the UK armed forces, uh, Years ago, you could see them around, and then obviously the IRA threat meant that it was difficult for them to, to move around as you know, be uh, out and about wearing uniform. But nevertheless, you sort of knew that they existed and they were in, you know, based in various towns. Now they're in large bases far away from where most of us live. So why would anybody get the idea that they might like to join the armed forces other than by watching... Uh, them on, on the telly, and then you, you don't really get an accurate uh, picture of what the armed forces do. AKK, just to, to get this back to Germany, AKK did a really good thing uh, where she was defense minister, which was that she made it free of charge for all members of the armed forces to travel on public transport if they wore a uniform. And the good thing about that was that it sort of demonstrated to the German to German society that the Bundeswehr exists and they're just normal people. They are, they are like you and me and you can even talk to them and you might even find out that they are totally reasonable people. You can have a lovely conversation. That was a really good initiative. Obviously, it, yeah, it, it won't reform the Bundeswehr. It won't solve the, the procurement problems and the recruitment problems. But nevertheless, it, it was a, a good step to just show that the, the military is part of our society. Mm. Well, on, on that point that Elizabeth made, Lisa, about the question, as she, as she put it, you know, where are these people going to come from? You mentioned in your piece that there's, in order to address this, this question, Pistorius has, has toyed with a few ideas here, uh, one of which is conscription uh, as an option, and another is even talk of allowing foreigners into the army. Are, are, there, are either of those actually politically realistic, do you think, as options? So I think the question of conscription is an interesting one. Controversial, I think, but you know, not only in Germany. This is, as Elizabeth also pointed out, these are problems that are being sort of talked about in other countries as well. Like even in the UK, this week there have been talks about conscription. The I think the more 
touchy subject as well is this question of allowing foreigners into the German army. It's one that several previous defence ministers have also considered. Ursula von der Leyen, when she was defence minister, also thought about it. And essentially, at the moment, in German law, you have to be a German citizen to join the army, except for in certain conditions. And so it would require a change in the law, essentially, to allow foreigners into the army. When this was considered by von der Leyen in 2018, it basically was a bit of a flop mainly because other European countries were quite concerned that the German army would end up poaching their best recruits. It might be something that they have to consider in Germany as we draw closer. But then equally, if the talks of, you know, impending World War Three become more pressing, then foreign recruits might also be hard to come by as other countries scramble for their own armies. So my guess would be that Pistorius perhaps would try conscription before he tries recruiting foreigners, but mm. we'll see. And Elizabeth, just finally, um, I suppose a big question looming over all this is, is Germany focusing on the right type of defence, particularly given that other NATO members, most notably America, have much stronger traditional armies? I mean, could they focus on different types of modern modern defence? Um, we run a piece by Owen Matthews in the magazine this week looking very closely at the success of Ukraine's drone warfare, for example, how the, its technological superiority when it comes to drones over Russia is it probably the strongest weapon it has in its war against Russia. So in the sort of modern, in the world of modern warfare, could that be an area where, where Germany could focus on instead of perhaps a more traditional army if it is having these problems with traditional kit and troop numbers? Uh, well, uh, Germany's NATO allies wouldn't like that. They would say, well, why should Germany get to pick the easy parts where you don't have to recruit people for, for the infantry and so forth? And, and I think this, this idea of recruiting foreigners, it's not going to fly. No country will allow Germany to, to go to their countries uh, to, to get soldiers because they are struggling to recruit too. Uh, a much better model, if I may just introduce a different subject, but uh, a much better model is the Norwegian one where they have uh, selected military service, the best and the brightest are selected. And uh, because it's uh, it's like getting into Oxbridge, you then get people serving who haven't thought of serving, it's just that they were selected. And if you're selected by the military equivalent of Oxbridge, of course you'll go. And 25% of those who are selected for military service then go on to uh, professional careers in, in the military because they realize that actually I quite like this. And I think something like that would be possible in Germany as well. Then, you know, the, the specialization, potential specialization in, in things other than territorial defense. Yes, uh, I think that's something that Germany can do, but the NATO allies will just never permit Germany to give up its responsibility for territorial defense because that's that's uh, the history of Germany within NATO is territorial defense along the, the eastern border. Obviously, now the eastern border has shifted from along the Fulda to much further east, but uh, Germany is still seen as the, 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 the major power within NATO that can provide that territorial defense. The UK uh, will contribute, but the UK is primarily a naval uh, major power. The US will obviously contribute as well, uh, but, but that's it. So it's really got to be Germany. And, and uh, yeah, I think Pistorius would have a very hard time within NATO ministerials if he were to suggest that <laughs> they, would, they would decrease uh, their, their attention to, to territorial defense. Lisa and Elizabeth, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you thank so you. much. And finally, the old dictum is that the customer is always right. But, as Quentin Letts asks in the magazine this week, has that adage been reversed in recent times? It now seems that the customer is always wrong, or at least can never be right. 
He joins me now. Quinton, what's going on? It's not just the customer always being wrong. The customer is now regarded as a scurvy beast, <laughs> as someone whose politics is yeah. uh, very suspect. And um, therefore, businesses issue uh, notices about uh, how customers should behave. Now, we have to preface this by saying there is a, a decent reason uh, for concern here in that assaults on shopkeepers and on shop assistants have gone up, and that is terrible. And uh, nothing excuses violence or rudeness to staff. But I think something much bigger is going on here. And the way that businesses are behaving is more to do about them parading their own virtue and their righteousness rather than uh, any desire to, um, to to look after their shop assistants. Well, you're right, isn't it? It's the sort of um, annoying thing about it from a customer perspective is it when you see signs like the ones you describe in your piece saying... Warning against, you know, we will not tolerate homophobic abuse and racist abuse and all this stuff. They sort of make an assumption about you as a customer that you're kind of just, just, you know, waiting to break into a trade of, uh, of abuse. Um, and that's certainly how it feels from a customer perspective. So for the vast majority of customers who aren't going to get violent uh, against people yes. who don't help us in the shop, you feel a bit like, well, we're all being lumped in with the troublemakers. You, know? it's, it's this, uh, you keep on seeing these signs, zero tolerance yeah. policy. And any shop that has a policy, I already suspect, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they have sort of protocols and what their, their philosophy yeah. is. I don't want to shop with philosophy. I just want to be, go to a haberdasher and, and buy a needle and thread. Uh, but nowadays you have to be told what their position is on everything. So they have these signs saying zero tolerance policy. And then the sign will go on to say, we will not tolerate any forms of sexual harassment, aggression, racism, misogyny, LGBT phobia, religious bigotry. Uh, this, you know, this is just a shop you've gone into. You yeah. haven't gone into a temple or into a church or even into a think tank. These are uh, places of commerce trying to sell you something. And yet they are trying to put their uh, positions first. And so it's a long, we've come a long way mm. from um, uh, Harry Gordon Selfridge, who, who died in 1947. But he was the, um, uh, the American who founded Selfridge's department store and he was one of the american uh, industrialists who had the dictum uh, that, that the customer is always right and if you go to today's selfridges website you get hit by this terrible spiel of um, of of their virtue and laying out what their position is on all sorts of um, ridiculous uh, sort of finger wagging things talking about how they they want no derogatory language to be used, and if there is any, then customers will be reported to the police or other authorities. And this is the language. This is the language of Orwell. It really is. Yeah. So, so what's um, what's caused this shift? Do you think? I mean, you mentioned the pandemic. You think a lot of behaviour of uh, shops towards their customers changed. Then is it's not just the pandemic, though, is it? The pandemic did put boosters on it, put turbochargers on it, and shopkeepers loved, or shop managers, I should say, loved putting up um, bollards and um, bits of red tape yeah. and arrows on the floor telling you where to go. My wife was at home base and there was no one else. This was in the Herefordshire home base and no one else was, no, no other customer was on the premises. There was one staff member there and my wife ducked under a bit of this red sticky tape uh, that was laying out where, where people should walk during the, um, the pandemic. And she got screamed at by the manageress, follow the arrows. And my wife said, well, there's, there's no one else here. And um, the manageress said very grudgingly, I'll let you off this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
goodness me. And my mother, who is uh, ancient, uh, 89, happy birthday, mother, um, uh, she uh, goes to Boots Opticians. And until now, they've given her a little uh, cardboard reservation uh, appointments card which with which to remind the person and always very handy this little card she could put by her telephone uh on her desk and they now refuse to give out these things because it's bad for the environment and because Amazing. they're saving the planet that's uh, brilliant boots, boots the opticians and she said to the staff can i have one of those cards and they said no they said you're not allowed them anymore and um we don't understand it, but head office says this. And instead, she has to print. They have to print out a big A4 sheet of paper, which of course isn't nearly as convenient. It's as though shops are setting out to make life difficult for us. Yes. Well, do you think that we we Brits do we put up with this too much as as customers? So my wife is American, and she is uh, she's rather shocked sometimes to the, the degree to which customer service in this country is very bad, but also the degree to which we all just put up with it. I don't know, actually. I disagree with that because I've lived in America in my time and British banks used to be fantastic. You'd go into a British bank and the person behind the counter would be very welcoming and all that. And I've lived in America and I've, uh, from the, uh, from 1980 I went to America first and I was struck by how rude British, uh, uh, American banks were to their customers compared okay. to British banks. Mm. Uh, banks are a very a very good example of how customer service has declined. The other area is travel. Oh, yeah. Airports are now set out to be a torment, and it's as though they really resent having to have people flying. And from the moment you arrive, you are treated like a, a, a sheep <laughs> heading to slaughter. With the, the the security checks and all that, they could not be ruder. Mm. At theatres in the West End, in London. Uh, it used to be lovely. You'd, you'd meet someone in the foyer and say, "Meet you in the we'll, we'll you know I, I've got the tickets. I'll meet you in the foyer, and we'll go and have a drink." Uh, now you have to corral. They get corralled. Theatre goes in the street outside. This is since the pandemic, and bouncers shout at the theatre goers, some of whom are spending hundreds of pounds. Mm. <laughs> they, they, they get shouted at and called people and guys yeah. rather than ladies and gentlemen, and. It just strikes me that there's a sort of sort of butchness in commerce now, and I think I don't think it's a particularly British thing. I think it's I think the British used to be very much better about this, uh, but I think some of it has been imported from America. Yeah. Despite what your wife might say. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> I'll let her know you said that. Insurance uh, companies, another example. Insurance companies used to be very respectful of their customers and used to uh, give them a preferential tr- treatment. If they were already a customer nowadays, existing customers get charged more by uh, insurance companies, unless you pretend that you're going to take your business elsewhere. And then, of course, they give you they give you a decent deal. Hmm. And the um, things started to go wrong. I think in about I reckon about 1990. Initially, Mrs. Thatcher came in, and private commerce came into some formerly nationalised businesses, and customer treatment went really became very good. And so British Telecom in the early days was a tremendous company. But then they slipped back into the old ways. And about 1990, the customer service number mm. came in. And this was, we were told, was for the convenience of the customer. And it was about 15 digits plus letters. It was completely impossible to remember your customer service number. If you didn't have it, you couldn't get any sort of sense out of them. And the customer service number was plainly there for the inconvenience of the customer and simply for the convenience of the people who worked at British Telecom. Whereas a lot of this, uh, I mean, the customer service number is, is a very good example of this, I think, but isn't a lot of the problems to do with 
technological innovations which are supposedly there to make things more efficient and streamlined and so on actually make it co more complicated. And then I think, I really think it also means that the, the, the sort of human members of staff that are left, once you bring in the new technology, they sort of almost become more robotic as well because they, um, you know, they have more pressure put on them. There's fewer actual... Through actual staff to help um, help around. I mean, you look at the supermarkets where there's very few people now behind the tills. Yes. Actually manning the tills. The ones yeah. that are left are completely overworked because a lot of people don't want to use the self-service checkout. They want to go and do it with the persons. But there's not very many of them left, so they're really kind of under a lot of strain. And, and, you, th and that's a problem of technology. Yes, and in supermarkets, there's always a queue, isn't there, for uh, the, for the for the the one till that will take cash. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's, yeah. You know, people want to use cash. Yeah. So if I were a businessman, I would try to accept people's cash yeah. rather than telling them, no, we don't do it. I love on the, the bit, train, uh, you try to buy a coffee on the train, you, you can't hand over uh, £2.50 or whatever it is, probably more than that, in, in coins because they say, oh, no, we're, we're not taking cash at this time. I love that. That's my favourite bit of your observation of your piece is, when, is where they say, at this time, as if one day they might go back to <laughs> Yes, of course they won't. Lazy swine. They're never going to go back to it. They're putting it in the too hard basket. Going back to your point on computerization, mm. telephone trees were a terrible part of computerization. So you, the, the telephone tree, is you, your heart sinks when you telephone a business. And you have to press button one while listening to some terrible <laughs> rendition of Vivaldi. And then the people at the other end have lost, they're no longer allowed, I think. It's not that they've lost the art. They're no longer allowed to use their initiative. Mm. And they have to use forms of words that are laid out in a protocol. Yeah. And uh, everything is read off a script. Mm. So the, 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 the human spontaneity is gone. And once that goes, the customer no longer feels cherished. Yeah. The customer feels like a product. Have you ever heard of what Rory Sutherland just calls the doorman fallacy? I really like this. Uh, I think he came up with it, but if not, he certainly quotes it a lot. And what it entails is the idea that a management team comes into a hotel, they look down their um, you know, spreadsheet, and they think, oh, well, the doorman pay him a wage, but we could all be automated, so they get rid of the doorman. But of course, what they don't factor in is the amount of sort of human work that the doorman does that, that isn't quantified on a spreadsheet. So, very you good, know, yes, spotting, very good. spotting yeah. the wrong ones and keeping them away from the front door, yeah. welcoming people as they come, making them feel like they're returning to an establishment that recognises them. I mean, that's all stuff that doesn't actually appear on a spreadsheet, but is, for the customer, extremely important um, when you're considering whether to return to a hotel or not. Yes. I think time and motion people are probably responsible for quite a lot of this. And time and motion people and accountants will tell you, for instance, that um, maids in hotels don't need to be, or, or male maids as well, don't need to be paid very much uh, for, for cleaning rooms. Uh, but Rocco Forti said to me the other day, he said, we, we pay our maids a great deal more above the going rate because they are among the most important people, yep. because they are the people who meet the customers probably more than the uh, executive chef does. Yep. So. Well, Quentin, thank you very much for, for joining me. Thank you. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed this episode, why not pick up a copy of the magazine to read all the pieces we talked about in full? I'm William Moore. And I'm Lara Prendergast, and I do hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you.